Forest Finn's treasure. I know you guys have been waiting all week for this episode. Forest Finn's treasure has been found. How do I feel about it? I feel great. I feel great, honestly. We'll talk about that in a second. Is it possible that there's actually a PlayStation 1 game that can cause you to commit suicide? And then we take a look at a trio of friends driving home from a camping trip. Everything seems normal until they see a car approaching them from the distance. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. Now, I promised you some more Forest Finn stuff on Monday. We'll get to that in just a second. First off, I want to give a shout out to our one of our legacy Patreons, Elkie. Elkie, thank you so much for supporting the show. That really, really helps out a lot. I have a prize, a surprise, it's a kind of a prize, for our Patreon supporters. We'll be getting into that tomorrow, but... Elkie, I'm going to dangle those little keys, jangle them in front of you. We're not getting in... You know what? Yeah, let's hop into Jason Delapi. Let's actually leave behind Hood River, Oregon. Let's drive out to New Mexico where we meet an old friend of the show. A man I always believed in. A man I never lost faith in. Forrest Finn. Forrest Finn. Now, first off, I want to say thank you so much to... Uh, Beatrice Leva. I, I, I don't... I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that name wrong. Leva. Uh, she's the first person who got this to me. I was getting ready to do some recording. She sent it to me. Awesome. Uh, shout out to her husband, Timothy Leva, as well. Fan of the show. The Leva family seems to be fans of the show. Really, really appreciate you guys listening to the show. And I listen, I appreciate all you guys listening to the show. Now, if you're a new listener, let me give you some brief background to this story. About 10 years ago, there was a man named Forrest Finn. He wrote a book called The Thrill of the Chase. The Thrill of the Hunt, I think it was. Thrill of the Chase. It had a poem in it, and it had all these clues, and if you figured out the clues, you would find a treasure that was valued at about like 2 to $5 million. Now, I recorded an episode, it was like episode 60, 70, and I tell the story, and then at very, like the last 30 seconds of it, I go, I don't think it's real. I think it's just this man, he's trying to like add a little whimsy to the world. I, I, I wasn't bad-mouthing him, but I immediately started getting negative feedback on that video, and concentrated negative feedback. Now, I didn't tell you guys the whole story. I didn't tell you guys the whole story. And I'll get to that in a second. But let's finish up this narrative. So I doubled down. That tends to be a lot of times what I do when I feel like I'm in the right. I felt like these guys were very cultish. They actually were called the fanatics. Like they're fanatics for Forrest Finn. That's... Don't make... If you're going to start an organization, don't sound like a bunch of lunatics. Yeah, we're the crazy murderers. We help old women across the street. Yeah. So anyways... The fanatics start attacking me and telling me how I'm I'm wrong and all this stuff, and that's fine. It turns out that I was wrong. I was wrong. So uh, within the past, this is where it gets weird. In the past couple of days, apparently, Forrest Finn has acknowledged that his treasure was found. The hunt is over. And he goes, well, I'm a little bittersweet about it because it's over. Like, the, the thing's over. And I got that email from Beatrice, and I go, I was wrong. I was wrong. And you know what? I'm totally fine being wrong. I've, I've made mistakes on this show before. Now, I could double down again and say, I believe that it's fake until I see proof. I want to see a photograph. I, maybe he's just faking it. He is facing some lawsuits over it. Some people are claiming fraud, that there was no treasure. So it's possible that this is him trying to get out from underneath that. But I personally believe now that Forrest Finn hit his treasure. Because the world is so insane... His own followers now, there's a civil war. 
some of if you go to the subreddits, which I have relished, I'm swimming in their subreddits right now. They are adamant that it was all fake to begin with, and they wasted their lives, and they demand compensation from Forcefin. It's insane. Everything flipped. Now, I believe the story, and half of them don't. Because here's the thing. I go, okay, whatever, it's fine. I, I put it, I'm, I'm on episode like 461. I don't have time to keep rehashing the same episode. But they've spent the last 10 years looking for this. And they're saying, if I don't see a photograph of the treasure chest, and here's the thing. The guy who supposedly found it doesn't want to be revealed. And that's fine. You, you come flush with cash you don't want people to know, especially the IRS. But people are saying, that's fine, don't tell us. But at least tell us the location, because I've spent 10 years trying to solve this riddle. I want to see how close I was. Or if I had it, and if I had gone out last winter, maybe I would have found it. Uh, Forrest Finn said the guy's from the East. Like, the East Coast. And I was reading this thing on Reddit, and they're like, maybe the man from the East means he's facing West, which again would place him in Colorado... I'm like, just, it's done, guys. There's not a riddle. There's not a riddle in the press release, you weirdo. What are you, what are you doing? It's over. But they can't acknowledge it's over. There's a split. Now, here's the thing. You go, Jason. You, you did the story. I've, I've thought, this is probably the one story I've addressed the most, right? On a show about ghosts and aliens, for whatever reason, a 77 year old treasure hunt keeps popping up well guys i'm gonna i did not let any of you know this this was behind the scenes stuff so my inner circle knew about this the forest fin the fanatics a couple of them invaded my private life i did not reveal that to you i did not want to get you guys upset i did not want to start a war and i don't give attention to trolls they but the war is over now right i admit that i'm wrong and they didn't get the treasure so i'm counting that a win if one of them got the treasure i might be a little more shaking my hand in the wind but uh, they tried getting the YouTube channel shut down. They made a concentrated effort filing false complaints against me. And back then, my channel only had like, what, six, seven hundred subs? So by the grace of God, the channel stayed up. And then they attacked the podcast host. If you listen, if you look at a lot of the early show notes, I was going through Podbean. Don't go through Podbean. Because they almost canceled the show. A couple of complaints against that podcast host in their terms of service. They said you can't say anything mean about anyone ever. So if you're doing a movie review show and you say that Michael Bay sucks, first off, you're wrong. But secondly, if someone complains, they can cancel your show. The show came so close to having all episodes just wiped. They, they would have just wiped the server. And it was ridiculous. Uh, the Forrest Finn people were saying that I was about to be sued in federal court, that Forrest Finn had filed... I mean, they were lying. That Forrest Finn had filed a lawsuit against me and that Podbean was going to be brought up on charges for all this stuff. One of the guys tried making up this false alter ego of like this cool kid in Sacramento. It was super bizarre. It was the whole thing was weird, right? So that was going on. That was going on. And, and I, I, that was really pissing me off. And, but I didn't reveal any of that to you guys. Really, I didn't reveal that to you guys because I didn't want them to know that they were getting under my skin, and I didn't want you guys to know, because I think you guys would have gone to the mattress with the Forest Finn people. I don't think they would have even expected, and I'm not asking you guys to do that now, but I, I was just like, I'm thinking, these guys, who, are, who do these guys think that they're, who do these old treasure hunters think that they're messing with? It's like the Fratellis versus the Goonies. We're the Goonies. We'll always win, dude. We'll just... But anyways, it's over. Don't go straight up Goonie on him, please. 
It's over. We won. They didn't win the treasure. Now they now they think it didn't exist. But anyway, so that is now. You now know the full, complete saga of the Forest Finn story. A small group of them actually trying to cancel the show. Almost succeeding. I said the treasure didn't exist. Now I'm wrong. But the people who said I was wrong back then now think that I was right. But now I'm wrong because I agree with him. So that is the scope. I We probably won't talk about Forrest Finn anymore. It'll probably, but it, you know, I've been getting emails for the past couple days being like, did you hear? And I appreciate those emails. Again, I take this as a win, not only because the people who were attacking me didn't get the treasure. That's, that's hilarious. That's super funny to me. But, and again, not attacking me by saying I'm stupid. And, that's fine. You can say that stuff. The people who are personally attacking me and trying to ruin the business that I've created, not just for myself, but for you guys. Though, criticize me all you want. But when you take it out of the realm of criticizing and actually trying to hurt me financially, that's that's something different. The thing is, is that I'm happy that the treasure was real, right? Doesn't that make it such a nice ending to the story? It makes it such a nice ending story. But you know what? I'm going on way too long talking about this. I think we've wrapped it up perfectly fine. Thank you, Beatrice. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you, the Levy family. Elkie's ready to get back in the car and drive away, as I'm sure the rest of you are. I hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes look at what was going on. Let's hop in that Jason Jalopy. Let's go for a ride into our next story. Elkie, we're driving away from Arizona. He's like, thank God. He's, he's hitting the pedal to the metal. We are leaving. We're leaving behind Arizona. We're leaving behind all those poor, ignorant saps that, that combated me. Your humble host. I'll admit that I was wrong. But I'm not going to admit that those guys aren't total pieces of garbage. They're sitting there in their raggedy old clothes and I'm taking off in my car. We're going to Japan. Now, this is a story that was recommended to me via email from a user known as Mitty Fresh. I don't know, user? As a person known as Mitty Fresh. So thank you, Mitty, for sending this over. And I got most of my information from a YouTube channel, Ultra Healthy Video Game Nerd. Very, very obscure story. Not a lot of sources on this. Could mean two different things. But we get to the Jason Jalopy to a cruise ship. Actually, let's hop in the Dead Rabbit rowboat now. Elkie's like, damn it, he's rowing, he's rowing the rowboat. We're rowing across the Pacific, we're getting to Japan. It's 2002, there's a small video game company called Media Entertainment. They've done a couple video games at this point. We're walking around the streets of Japan, eating pockies and stuff. We walk into this video game place, and they're working on a game called Kawaii Shashin. All little computer programmers type it and stuff. I don't know how you make video games. They're just using an actual typewriter. They're like, if we type fast enough, the words come to life. They're typing out. They're doing programming and stuff. Now, they're coming up with a game for the PlayStation 1. It's called Kawaii Shashin. It literally means scary picture. And in this game, you play a paranormal investigator... And her job is to perform exorcisms. And it's like a series of missions. So each each story has like a backstory. So it's like me and my cousin were walking down the street, eating a bunch of Pockies, and then a ghost showed up. And then you're given a level, and you're given a, a grainy photograph. It's a digitized photograph. They're real photographs that are turned into PS1 graphics. And in the photo, there's going to be ghosts, quote-unquote, hidden. Because I was watching all this gameplay footage. It's totally obvious where the ghosts are. But you move a little cursor around... You hover on the ghost, you click it, and then you play a quick time event game where you have to hit the buttons in a certain order quick enough. You exercise the ghost. You do that to a couple different photos, and then you're on to the next level, which is a new photo, new backstory, and things like that. So, pretty basic game, pretty basic 
Find a Picture Games. Very obscure. It wasn't a huge hit. The game company went out of business shortly after this game came out. That in and of itself isn't suspicious. Game companies go out of business all the time. Even when they have huge hits. Even when they make great games, they can still go out of business. Now, here's the thing. The story has pretty limited resources as far as, like, there's not a lot about it in English, about this story in English. And it could 100% be a LARP. And the reason why there's not a lot of resources on it is because the scary story, the creepypasta, hasn't taken off yet. That's definitely possible. The other possibility, the possibility we're going to look at, the spooky possibility, is that there's just cultural barriers and it's not something that a lot of people want to talk about in Japan. And it's slowly leaking out into the Western press. I, I guess that's what I am now. I'm now the Western press. And also ultra-healthy video game nerd. So here's the backstory to this game. Apparently, they, they knew they this was their first scary game. But scary games for the PS1 in Japan were pretty commonplace. I mean, they, they weren't... It wasn't their number one seller, but you, you'd get them. And Media Entertainment wanted to try their hand at this video game genre. So they say, let's do this scary picture. They come up with the thing. And originally, the director of the project... We know the initials of Keiko. We don't actually know the full name of this lead developer. Again, this is where it starts to look like creepypasta territory. But... Keikoa goes, let's get photos from actual haunted places. Put them in our game. So Keikoa and the rest of his team go around. They go to these shrines. They go to these places that are rumored to be haunted and take photographs. But the thing is, they they just look like photographs of buildings. Creepy buildings, sure. But they don't give them the exact level of spookiness that Keikoa wants. So what he does is he contracts with a local paranormal researcher group to send photos that have already been taken of confirmed haunted places that these paranormal investigators have vetted. They get about 30 photographs of these locations. And there'd be like a wisp of smoke in one area, or you'd see maybe an orb in this picture. And it still wasn't enough. So what Keiko and his team did was they began cutting and pasting the pictures together. They'd go, this is a really cool thing, a mist. But let's move it into this picture where it'll pop more. And then let's actually draw a spooky face over this mist. So this is an actual haunted picture. But we're going to clip it. We're going to put it in this other picture. Then we're going to magnify it and actually draw a spooky face on it to make it extra scary. So they're actually taking the proof of ghosts. Cutting and pasting and drawing over them. And then inserting them into their video game. And once all the photographs are processed there in the game. People start playtesting the game. And you'd have the team there working on stuff, and you'd hear a scream in the hallways. Ah! And, you're, and now that's you screaming, because you're like, Jason, are you really telling us a creepypasta story? Hold on. Hold on. They hear a scream in the hallways. And then you have incidents where one of the debugger, one of the people working on the debugging team, just flips out in the middle of working on the game. Flips out, starts screaming, running around, faints in that order. Doesn't faint and then run around. Goes to the doctor. One of the lead designers of the game doesn't come to work the next day because he cut his thumb off. And people go, what, what were you doing? And he goes, I don't know why. I remember cutting my thumb off, but I don't know why. So the legend starts to grow in the office that both the debugger and the lead developer who had these incidents were both working on level six, which was the level, it was a photograph of a train station. So people did not want to work on level six anymore. They actually created a skip code in the game so you could skip level 6 specifically. But of course you have to work on level 6. You have to have the game be complete. 
So some people were brave enough to do it. What happened was the game is about to come out, and one day Kei Koa, the head of the team, calls in and says, I'm not feeling good, I can't come into work today. And then the next day, the head of the company lets everyone who's working on Kawhi Shishin know that Kei Koa was found... I mean, okay. The... <laughs> Kei Koa was found dead in a train station bathroom. He hung himself. And it was in a... It, it was the train station the opposite direction of his house. So, I know that sounds weird, but like here's his house and here's his work. He didn't go to work that day. He took a train in the opposite direction and he hung himself the train stop after the haunted train stop in the photo. So basically the implication is that he took he didn't go to work that day. I'm trying to say this with a straight face because I know what all of you are thinking. Maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe you guys are super puzzled. He leaves his house. He doesn't go to work that day. He goes in the opposite direction. He stops at the haunted place in the photograph. He goes to that train station and the next train station he hangs himself. And the game comes out. Doesn't do very well. Company goes bankrupt after after the game comes out or it goes out of business. Now the reason why I'm laughing is because that story is almost <laughs> that story is almost certainly creepypasta. And I don't ever I re- thank you Mitty for for um recommending this story. I don't read creepypasta on this show at all, right? But it's most certainly Creepypasta. The reason why, and you're like, so Jason, why did you talk so long about it if you think it's Creepypasta? And that's one thing you don't do on the show. This is what I find fascinating about this story. One, it's perfect. This is one of those stories. Normally I say, let's assume it's real. First off, let's assume that this story is fake. It's perfectly constructed to be a compelling ghost story. Because let's take a look at the elements here. One. It's far in the past, 2003. We're talking about a story that's 17 years ago. Right now, there's this big thing going on that Mario 64 is like paranormal, and like each person who plays it can see different symbols. And it was, and I spent maybe 10 minutes looking into it and thought it was some of the dumbest stuff I had read in a while. And that's quite a high margin. You can find symbolism in anything. That's the point. That's the point of symbolism. But in a game like Super Mario 64 or whatever it's called, had Mario World, Mario Odyssey, whatever particular game it was, anything that has hours and hours of content, you're going to find, you can cherry pick stuff out of it. I can take the animated Transformers, the movie, and find proof of the Illuminati in that movie. If you spend a long enough time, because it's an hour and a half of visual images and sound and stuff like that. And a video game is far more than an hour and a half. So, but the, the thing, the problem I see with the Mario Brothers thing is, one, it's too recent now, but it does have a thing. If you had a conspiracy theory based on a game that you could put into your console today, if you had a conspiracy theory based on Team Fortress 2, it wouldn't really last because anyone can check it within a minute or two. But Mario 64, people who never played the game, haven't played the game in years, don't have a Nintendo 64 or whatever console to play that on, they can't verify the stupid stuff that's coming out of these theories. So this story here... Kawaii Shoshin, you would need a PlayStation 1, and you would need a copy of a very obscure game. It's a very, very obscure game. Now, I'm not saying I don't think MIDI created the Creepypasta, and I don't think Ultra Healthy Video Game Nerd created the Creepypasta. They may simply be repeating it. But it's perfectly engineered, because it's an old game, it's an obscure game. It's not Red Dead Redemption 1 for, you know, your late the remastered copy you can get for a PC. You'd have to have a PS1, you'd have to have this obscure video game. You'd have to be able to speak Japanese to really understand what the game was about in the first place. All of, all of these things 
make it very limiting. So it's easy to talk about something that's more obscure and saying it is haunted versus that's easier to say than if you rent Jack and Jill on Blu-ray and you play it at three in the morning, Jack and Jill pop out and they start rubbing your head. They, you, that's obviously easy to disprove. It's it's perfectly constructed. It takes place far in the past. We don't have anyone's real names. Oh, and here's another part of the story is that people were so convinced this game was cursed, they removed their names from the credits of the game. So even if you were able to track down the people who worked on the game, the the it's built into the myth that, oh, no, no, but the people who got their names removed were the ones who experienced the supernatural events. So it's perfectly constructed to be an interesting ghost story. I I, I wanted to talk about it on that sense, because it's just so perfectly constructed, as opposed to this Mario 64 thing that's going around and again, I could be getting the game wrong. I don't, it's a dumb conspiracy anyways, but this idea that you play it and it's mystical or you play it and it has symbolism or it changes to you. I've seen a couple different versions of the conspiracy pop out. It's far easier to disprove because you can get a copy of it, but you can never disprove symbolism, right? You can never disprove, it's like looking up at clouds. I could go, that looks like a dog. And you go, no, that looks like a cow. We can't convince each other either way. But all that being said, if it is true, let's put, go back into the realm of Dead Rabbit Radio. If it is true, it's interesting because there's copies of, even though this game's obscure, there's copies of it still floating around out there. It's not so obscure that you would never be able to find it again. You'd probably pay a little bit extra money for it, and you'd have to track down a PS1. You may have one yourself, but then you could play it. And it's not something that it seemed to be that everyone who played it experienced this activity. However... Based on this legend, if you played it, and you lived in Japan, and you went to that train stop that's in that photograph, you may face the wrath of this ghost. And and the implication is that the photograph itself wasn't haunted, but once they started manipulating the photograph, it pulled out whatever darkness was in there. That's another interesting part of this ghost story. And it makes you think the next time someone is sharing haunted photographs when you're watching these scary youtube videos or you're on a facebook group or instagram group or something like that and they're sharing these photographs who knows maybe the person who's sharing that photograph didn't think it was spooky enough felt they needed to run it through a filter or add a little extra mist into the photo and are they possibly also awakening something dark in that photograph who knows photographs are supposed to capture the soul but maybe they're really going to capture yours. To be fair, I had no other... I had, that was bad, but I had no other way to end that story. But this, now I'm pointing at Elkie. He's too scared to keep driving, but he's going to have to keep driving. That's the thing when you're a Patreon supporter. you got to drive us around. Let's leave behind Japan. We're not taking the train. We're not taking the train. We're driving. Let's get in the Carpenter Copter, actually. We can't leave... It's an island. We're getting the Carpenter Copter. We are flying out to Tennessee. Because you're the only 10 I see. Because I'm looking at Elkie. Elkie's like, what are you you talking about? Puts up a little partition between us. It's 1985. I got this from the Think About It Docs website. It's a great website. We've talked about this before. And they got it from a book called Phantom and Monsters by Lon Strickler. It's summer 1985. Little leaves are still on trees. I don't know. It's not fall yet. Little leaves are still attached to trees. They're green. Cars driving down. Route 49, southbound Route 49 towards Dover, Tennessee. I dare anyone living in this area to take part, to go out there. I dare you. We're at the Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area. Now, we don't have any names for these people. They gave their initials in the story, so I'm going to assign them names. We're going to have Ricky, 
Justin, and Tony. Three buddies driving through land between the lakes national recreation area. They're headed home. They're driving down the road. It's early evening. Our helicopter's up in the sky watching all this stuff. I'm not going anywhere near this story. They're driving down the road. It's early evening. Now, Justin's driving. Ricky's sitting in the passenger seat. He's humming. He's humming a jaunty tune. And Tony is in the back just chilling. Car's driving down the road. Now, the road's coming up to a slight curve. And they see coming in the opposite direction an old-style sedan. It's It's gray. It's older. And it's driving towards them. They're about to pass each other. And the sedan starts to slow down so slow that Ricky starts to think, oh, they want to tell us something. The person driving this car wants to say something to us. And they're driving. They're slowing down because the corner's coming. But the other car's slowing down much, much slower than it needs to. And Justin and Ricky are sitting there. Tony's nearly oblivious to this whole incident. But Justin and Ricky are sitting there. And as they see the car get closer, they see the driver in the other car has bushy, bushy hair. Just imagine animal from the Muppets. Just now, not magenta, normal colored hair. But I don't know why I keep making that death ray sound. That's the hair frizzing out. Bushy, bushy hair. Whoever it is is also wearing a set of glasses. Now, their car starts to slow down a bit, too. Curious, right? If someone's coming up alongside you, and they're slowing down to say something, you're going to slow down a little bit as well. And as the gray sedan gets closer and closer, the driver of that car is staring dead on at Ricky and Justin. And that's when they can tell that the driver of the car had big eyes. Now, not gray alien, one-third of the head eyes, not a giant black orb, just larger than a human's eyes should be. Precious moments type of eyes. Cartoon big eyes. Inhumanly big eyes. And the cars get slower as they're just starting to pass each other. At that point, as the cars are just starting to pass each other, Ricky realizes that the driver of the sedan is looking right at them. And not in the sense where he's staring at them. His face, the driver's face in the other car is actually getting closer to them. It's stretching out the window. The neck is distending and getting longer and longer, impossibly long. Until the neck is hanging outside of the car's window. And it gets closer and closer. Both cars seem like they're almost stopped at this moment. It's not human. This creature's head is now leaning completely out of the car. Almost to Ricky and Justin's car. And that's when the head actually begins to turn like a clock. Click, 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 click. Until its head is completely upside down. Now, Ricky is looking at a face of a man hanging three, four feet out of a car, upside down. And then, it then to make things worse, to make things even more disturbing, the face begins to shapeshift and begins to let out a cry. Ooh. 
Justin slams on the gas. Speeds out of there. Tony has no idea what just happened. Tony, Tony's in the back seat, and Justin and Ricky are thinking, what, ha- what did we just see? They begin comparing notes. They know what they saw. They saw the car slow down. The head extend out of the car. It turned. It twisted till its face was upside down, making loud woo-woo and howling noises at the same time. Its eyes were impossibly big. Its face began to contort and distend. Ricky's almost in tears. Justin is panicking. He's driving faster and faster. And Ricky begins begging Justin, please, 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 turn around. What? Turn around. Turn around. Justin can't figure out why Ricky wants the car to turn around. Ricky begins pleading. I don't know what that was, but we have to kill it. We have to kill it now. Turn the car around. I'm going to shoot it. We're not turning it. Turn the car around. The car keeps barreling down the road faster and faster and faster away from the creature. Ricky wants to turn it around because he knew something. He knew something deep inside. He knew that thing shouldn't exist. He knew that thing should have never been on this earth. And they let it get away. Later on, when Ricky was being interviewed by Lon Strickler, he says, I fear the day I run into that thing again. And I regret not killing it on the spot. I live in fear that someday I'll look up from reading a newspaper and I'll see it in front of me. Or I'll be driving down another road and off in the distance I'll see a beat up old sedan headed towards me. Or I'll be walking into my bedroom and I hear something rustle under my bed. And then I hear a familiar noise. An inhuman noise. I should have killed it right there. He's the one who told the story to Lon Strickler, and he says, listen, I know this sounds ridiculous. I know this probably sounds like creepypasta. Interview my buddy Justin, and Lon Strickler went to Justin, and Justin goes, I will confirm the story happened, but I'm not answering in another word. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I will confirm that my buddy's not insane, and it did happen, but don't ask me anything else. Tony, they go, we don't know if he just was completely oblivious to what was going on, or if he was paralyzed, or if he was put to sleep. Like, he he basically, it wasn't like he was like, shucks, guys, what are you so panicked about? As he's reading an Archie and Jughead comic book. Like, he had zero reaction to it at all. Like, he couldn't even perceive the danger that was going on. While there are two people in front of him, one, it's stunned into silence, and he never wanted to talk about it, and the other one, it's stunned into violence. He wanted to turn around and kill the thing there and then. Sometimes the creepiest stories don't involve haunted houses or spooky subway stations. We expect terror when we go into dark places. We expect bad things to happen when we listen to local legends about the haunted insane asylum, or just the regular insane asylum. So for those of you who don't go ghost hunting, who just like hearing spooky stories, who prefer to read about this stuff or listen about this stuff or explore these type of topics during the bright of day, don't be so sure that you are safe. Don't be so sure that you won't encounter something like this. The world of the paranormal has no rules. So whether you're purposely going to a haunted train station or just enjoying an evening drive. Always be aware that these things can get you at any moment. You may think you can avoid them by avoiding the darkness. 
But eventually, the darkness always gets what it wants. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. And Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.